Our passage for today um, contains one of the most simple and yet profound verses probably in all of Scripture. We are in Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we'll start in verse 15, but the verse I'm talking about, it really comes at the end of the passage. And so I want, want us to look there and kind of see where this is all going and why this is important. And then uh, we'll go back and look at how the author of Hebrews got there. Verse 27 of Hebrews 9 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Such a simple truth. It's appointed that man is going to die once, and after that comes judgment. Well, of course, the dying part uh, could be kind of, uh, a wrench could be thrown in that um, if Jesus were to come back uh, before we pass, which is something we will get to um, in verse 28 when we get there. But the truth still stands that right now, uh, the death rate, you know, there, there's been a lot of information out there about uh, coronavirus death rates and percentages and all of this and, uh, and fatalities and all, all of that and all the numbers and everything. Um, but I want to give you just an overarching number that covers everything. And the overall death rate right now in the world and throughout history is running at right about 100%. We, we all... Unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. It's going to happen. It's a reality. It's a reality that us as mankind, uh, especially in our culture right now, especially where we are in the world right now, we don't like to face that. We don't like that truth. Um, Our cultural mindset is that, well, yeah, that's true, Wayne, but... Uh, basically, through our science, through our medicine, we kind of expect for our, our medicine to keep us healthy um, and keep us keep us going until we get, you know, at least into our 80s or 90s. And then we can say, oh, well, that was a good run, you know. Um, and that's why our culture has been rocked at its very foundation just by news of a virus that our medical professionals cannot cure. They're working on it. I'm prayerful that they find a cure for it. I'm not not saying I'm against finding cures. I'm not minimizing coronavirus in any way. It's very serious. It's a big deal. Um, And that's why we've taken it very seriously here at, at the church. But at the same time, it's something that has rocked our world because it has brought us as a, as people face to face with this reality that we will all die once, whether that is by um, COVID or car wreck, whether it's COVID or cancer, whether it's COVID or just a catastrophe, whether it's COVID or a cold, see all those C's there. Seas can kill you. Um, Whatever the means, however it is that that we ultimately uh, pass away from this life, it's going to happen. It's a reality. And so the question is, but what's next? What's after that? 
And that's what we see here in Hebrews 9.27, is that we all die once and then face judgment. We all die once and then we face judgment. So as we go into that, as we face judgment, it's something that's coming for us all. It's, it's on our, our roadmap. It's, it's in the, the direction that we're all heading. The question is, how do we get ready for that judgment? How, how can we be prepared for that? And that's where the author of Hebrews has been leading up to this. And so I started there to, to kind of stress for us the importance of what we're talking about today. But in Hebrews 9.15, uh, he says this, Therefore he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Like, uh, what? There's a lot of covenants, transmissions, inheritance, mediator. What was all of that, Wayne? Uh, well, let's, let's pause and kind of really dig into what he's saying there. Again, we'll work it from the back to the front. So he's talking about the fact that the transgressions committed. What does that mean? That means that that we all have ways that we have transgressed or done wrong against God. We all have ways that things that we have done, things that we have been part of, that means that when we face that judgment, we should be found guilty. When we face that judgment at the end of our life, we should be punished. Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it starts as we have all transgressed against God, which he has to judge because he is perfect. He is holy. He is a perfect God. He is a perfect judge. And it would be unperfect of him to not judge our wrongdoings, to not hold us accountable for the things we've done. We want others to be held accountable for their wrongdoings, but we maybe don't want the same for ourselves. But the reality is, is that yes, at the end, God is going to judge. He's going to judge um, based on our lives, based on the things that we've done. And the fact is, whenever there's any sin, any transgression, God has to judge that, and God has to punish that. But the good news is, what he covered before that in here, is that, that through Jesus, through this new covenant, we're called may receive a promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems us. So what was that death? That death was Jesus himself. That death was Jesus who had never sinned, never transgressed against God, never did anything wrong, did not deserve judgment. And yet he laid down his life on a cross, paying the price for us. He died so that we can live. He died so that we could be forgiven. He was punished so that we can be set free. And in him, God placed judgment on Jesus for the sins of mankind. And in, in response to that, what we get, what we get after the end is the promised eternal inheritance. What does that mean? That means that what Jesus deserved, what Jesus should have gotten for living a sinless, perfect life, is what we get instead. He took our sin on himself, 
and we get his eternal blessings for all of eternity. You know, I was mentioning earlier, like, we think, oh, wow, 80, 90 years, that was a good run. You did a good job. Way to go. A good life. Eternity is what's after. 80, 90 years is but a blink. It's but a breath compared to that. And so how are you using this time, this life that you have? Um, have, have you come to this truth in your life? Do you have this inheritance to look forward to? Well, who gets it? What does he say here? So that those who are called may receive it. Have you been called? What does that mean? Being called is when you hear the gospel. You hear the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us, like I just shared to you. And in that moment, you realize, hey, this is true. This is real. Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did live a sinless, perfect life, and He really did die on the cross paying the price for me. And you cry out to Him and say, Yes, Lord, I want to follow You. You do that because His Holy Spirit is working in you and calling you to Himself. And so I want to ask you today, have you answered that call? Have you responded and said, Yes, Lord, I am Yours. I give my life to you. I turn from my transgressions. I turn from my sin, and I want to follow you. You are the Lord. You are my Savior. And he does all the work. He's the one that calls. He's the one that saves. I didn't see anything in this verse about actions we have to do in order to earn earn this salvation. I didn't see anything in this verse um, about things we have to do to maintain our salvation once we have it. No, those who are called receive the promised inheritance. So is he calling you today? And answer him. It's been said that the only thing that I contribute to my salvation was the sin which made it necessary. The only thing which I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. It's not something that we have earned, not something that we have done. And so Christian, I want to encourage you today, those of you that have heard this call, those of you that are awaiting this eternal inheritance, I want to encourage you with this truth. The fact that Jesus did it all for you. You get to rest in that. You get to have peace in that. It's not about striving. It's not about uh, being good enough. It's not about any of that, but it's just about him and what he's done and what he has done for us. So the, ver- the passage goes on. For, a, for where a will is involved. Okay, what's he talking about here, a will? He's talking about like will as in what you choose. No, that's not what he's talking about here. He was just talking about inheritance. How do you get an inheritance? You get an inheritance because it was left to you in a will, uh, a last will and testament. And so, for where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So what's he saying? He's saying we can get that inheritance We can get that inheritance because Jesus willed it and Jesus died. And in his death, his will was enacted. It was said, yes, this is active. This is a done deal. This inheritance goes to those who are called. So Jesus' will declares the eternal inheritance of redemption for those who are his. 
When he died, that will was enacted. That's where our hope is. It's in his death. But the really cool thing about, uh, about Jesus in this is who, who is the executor of his will. I don't know if any of you have had the great honor of being an executor of a will. Um, I say honor tongue in cheek uh, because I, I haven't had that honor, but some of my family members have and people I know have, and it is far from an honor. Um, it is a headache. Uh, you have to deal with all of these legal things and uh, you have to deal with disgruntled family members that maybe you're wanting their part of the inheritance before they can get it. And uh, you get accused of, well, you're being greedy or you're doing this or that or whatever, even if you're just trying to follow uh, the, the will um, that you were given by the person who passed. And it's just a headache, right? And being, being that executor of a will is a hard thing. But here's the great thing about Jesus and his will. Because Jesus did not remain dead, he is the executor of his own will. Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose again. And in that, he is executing his will. He is is executing um, his last will and testament and calling those to himself who are his and saying, yes, you have this inheritance for eternity. And we get to know him in that and have him in that. And that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. He is carrying out his will just as he willed it. Let's move on. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." And so here again, he's talking about the Old Testament system and the Old Covenant, something that as we've gone through Hebrews, we've looked at a lot in a lot of detail. And so I'm not going to go into a a lot of detail here um, on what he's saying here, because he's he's saying the same kind of thing. He's kind of showing uh, the ineffectiveness of this old system and the fact, but it does point to the new system. It points to the truth in Jesus. Um, It pointed to the fact that blood sacrifice was required in order for people to be forgiven of their sins. Now, I did think of a new illustration with this, okay? Because he's talking about all these different things where a little bit of blood sprinkled here, a little bit of blood sprinkled here, blah, 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 blood, 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 a little bit here, cleanse this, clean this, blah, blah, blah. So let's think about it this way. As with all my illustrations relating this stuff, this is imperfect, but go with me, okay? Um, So imagine you need, um, you go and you try to crank your car. It won't crank. Nothing, just dead. And, you know, you say, I know what I need. I need a new battery. Um, You know, you've known it's coming. It was kind of having issues. Now it's all the way dead. And so you say, I just, I need a battery. Well, here's what I have. I have a bunch of AA batteries. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tape all of these together um, to make one bigger battery because I know a car battery is bigger than my AA batteries. 
Okay, um, so I'm going to tape all of these AA batteries together and hook it to my car and use that. Um, and I, I think that's because I just need a battery, right? And so I put all these little ones together to try to replace the one big one that I need. Now, I know some of you, Steve, um, and you're going to go try this. Uh, and I want to fully uh, say I am not responsible or endorsing this in any way, uh, trying to crank cars with AA batteries. Um, that's my first caveat. My second caveat is if you do try it, please take a video and send it to me because I want to see what happens. Um, but the, the point is these, all these little ones point to the, the reality of the real one that you need. You need a car battery. That's what you need. And the same is true with the Old Testament system in Jesus. All these little blood sacrifices just pointed to the reality of what we really needed. We really needed Jesus. We really needed the perfect sacrifice, not all of these little ones all over the place. And so while they, they served their purpose and pointed to the reality of what was needed, they were insufficient and could not fulfill what was needed because the fact is, is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You might say, you know, that, that whole blood thing and all of that, that's just, I don't know, that's kind of weird. Um, that's not really whatever. Well, blood rec- represents our life. And for our life to be forgiven... It requires the blood sacrifice. And that's the way that God created it, whether or not we like it or not. That's just the way that it is. And so he goes on and he says this, verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves... Uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with the hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now this whole copies thing goes with what we've been looking at, uh, running through Hebrews with copies and shadows, how those old things were just a reflection or a shadow of the reality of Jesus. Um, Here he's calling them copies, so it's like a copy. It's not the original, it's just a copy. Um, But what he's saying here in this verse is very important and something he's going to build on even more when we get over, especially to chapter 11. And the fact that even in the old system, even in the old covenant, even in all of the Old Testament law and all of that, ultimately all of that was made holy and made perfect by Jesus. What we're going to see over in Hebrews 11 is those who were, who were saved, those who were forgiven in the old system, they were forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That's how they, they also received forgiveness just like us today. And so, Jesus ultimately purified the Old Testament system. He goes on, verse 25, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And so this is something that we, we've seen also already, uh, is this fact of, of Jesus died once and for all. The sacrifice that he paid was sufficient. It's not something where he has to keep going back to the cross. It's not something where uh, more and more lambs have to be laid down. Their lives have to be taken. It's not where there has to be more and more blood. No, Jesus's blood was sufficient and it was enough. On the cross, Jesus put away sin once and for all. Jesus took care of it. It is settled. If you have been called by Jesus and you've been redeemed by his blood, then you will receive the eternal inheritance. Jesus does not have to keep dying on the cross for you. He does not have uh, to sacrifice over and over again. It's finished. His work that was necessary for your salvation is done. And now we can fall into saying, and then we've seen other verses in Hebrews where it could be taken to mean that, yeah, but we have to like work hard enough to keep our salvation. To which, that's just not what it's saying. That's not what he's saying here. And that's what we've seen as we looked at those different verses as well. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. He doesn't have to die over and over again. And ultimately, he's the one that saves. He's the one that calls. It's on him. It's what he's doing. It's not about what we're doing. That doesn't mean that we abuse his grace. It doesn't mean that we go run around doing whatever we want. No, when you have been called, you've been called out of that life and called into following him. So as you follow him, you're not going to want to keep living in that way anymore. You're not going to want to keep falling into those old things anymore, those old traps anymore. You're going to want to follow him. And why does this matter? Why is all this important? And just as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Our only hope in that judgment is Jesus. That's our only hope. There is a, a pretty well-known uh, man who uh, passed away this week. His name was uh, Ravi Zacharias. Um, and he was a, a Christian apologist, a very, very sharp intellectual man. Um, you know, now with all Christian authors, are there things I would disagree with him on? Sure. Um, can you Google on the internet and probably find some things that maybe he did wrong? Sure. Um, but the thing is like, that's kind of the gospel message that we've been talking about today is that we all have sinned. We all have transgressions. So he had sins, he had transgressions. But the fact is, is that he constantly throughout his life pointed people to the truth and the hope that we can have beyond those transgressions. The hope that we can have for when there is the judgment. Uh, Ravi did a great job of engaging people, uh, not just through this is what the Bible says, but engaging people through reason and intellect and he put out some, some great um, explanations and uh, defenses for even the existence of God. And so um, I encourage you, uh, maybe today, if you haven't ever looked at any of his stuff, uh, just YouTube um, some Ravi Zacharias and uh, hear what he had to say. But when we heard this, Brittany and I were talking about it at home, and I said, you know, the really cool thing is as I see 
all of these posts um, on social media about his passing, the posts aren't just about that some guy died. The posts are about he has received his eternal inheritance. Because with Ravi, there was no doubt as to what his faith was in. There was no doubt as to where his hope lie. And so for those of us who know hope in Jesus, who know faith in him, then we can look at his life and we can look at his message and we can look at what he was about and we say, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's received this eternal inheritance we're talking about. He's, he, he died once and now he's faced judgment. And based on what we know of him, know of his life and know of his testimony and his relationship with God, it can be said, yes, he's better off now. No more cancer. That's gone. He's better off. I want to encourage you, Christian, that for your loved ones, that is a more important thing that you can leave them than a will. Then, uh, hey, here's what to do with my earthly possessions. Christians, I want to encourage you that the most important thing that you can leave behind is for everyone to know without a doubt that, yes, they were with Jesus. They were called. They lived their life in light of that. And now they face judgment, but Jesus has them. Jesus has covered them. And so there's hope, hope for eternity. They receive the eternal inheritance now. I encourage you, Christian, that's one of the best things that you can do in your life is leave your loved ones with that assurance. Going on, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, notice he has many, not all. So if you think in all of this that it's just universal, that, that Jesus just saves everybody no matter, no matter what, no, there's a specific group that he's calling to himself. And you need to answer that call if you're hearing that call in your life um, so that you're included in the many. To bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's the great news. Just as sure as Jesus did what he did on the cross and it was sufficient, we can have full faith that Jesus is coming again. When he comes again, he comes again, and he's not coming to deal with sin, but he's coming to to save those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. So I want to ask you today, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Is that that your heart's cry that you say, "I I just want Jesus to come back. I want to be with him. I'm ready for that. That is so much going to be so much better and so much more than anything I have in this life. I hope you're there. I hope you can get there. Maybe you are hearing him calling you today. And if so, this is kind of the end of the sermon for you. And I want you to focus in on hearing that call and answering it. Saying, yes, Jesus, I give my life to you. I want to be yours. Thank you for what you did on the cross for me. I believe in your your death and your resurrection. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you lived a sinless life and that you paid the price for me. Yes, I answer your call today. Now, for those of us who have answered his call, what are our takeaways? 
One, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be afraid. Um, you know, right now in the middle of the, the global pandemic, um, and I know that attitudes and perspectives on a lot of this are constantly shifting, uh, but I want to just offer us a little perspective from history as far as Christians and their engagement with pandemics. Uh, this article was brought to my attention this week. Um, it's not uh, by a Christian source. It's not like a, a Christian news outlet or anything like that. It was actually on a website. It was like uh, globalpolicy.com or something like that. Uh, but this guy writes this article, and he is a Christian, and he's writing from a Lutheran perspective. But I'm just going to read uh, some parts of this to you. The modern world has suddenly become acquainted with the oldest traveling companion of human history. Existential dread and the fear of an unavoidable, inscrutable death. No vaccine or antibiotic will save us for the time being. Because this experience has become foreign to, to many people, we are, by and large, psychologically and culturally under-equipped for the current coronavirus pandemic. Skipping over some. The Christian response to plagues begins with some of Jesus' most famous teachings. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. Put plainly, the Christian ethic in a time of plague considers that our own life must always be regarded as less important than that of our neighbor. During plague periods in the Roman Empire, Christians made a name for themselves. Historians have suggested that the terrible Antonine plague of the second century which might have killed off a quarter of the Roman Empire, led to the spread of Christianity. As Christians cared for the sick and offered a spiritual model whereby plagues were not the work of angry and capricious deities, but the product of a broken creation and revolt against a living God. He goes on through uh, some other plagues um, throughout history. Uh, he gets to, to one in the 1500s. He says, The habit of sacrificial care has reappeared throughout history. In 1527, when the bubonic plague hit Wittenberg, uh, Martin Luther refused calls to flee the city and protect himself. Rather, he stayed and ministered to the sick. The refusal to flee cost his daughter Elizabeth her life, but it produced a tract whether Christians should flee the plague, where Luther provides a clear articulation of the Christian epidemic response. We die at our post. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. For Christians, it is better that we should die serving our neighbor than surrounded by a pile of masks we never got a chance to use. 
And if we care for each other, if we share mask and hand soap and canned food, if we are our brother's keeper, we might actually reduce the death toll too. To modern people acquainted with germ theory of disease, this can all sound a bit foolish. Caring for the sick sounds nice, but is likely to infect others as to save lives. In an intensely uh, professionalized medical environment, should common people really assume a burden of care? Skipping over a little bit. The Christian motive for hygiene and sanitation does not arise in self-preservation, but an ethic of service to our neighbor. We wish to care for the afflicted, which first and foremost means not infecting the healthy. Early Christians created the first hospitals in Europe as hygienic places to provide care during times of plague. On the understanding that negligence that spread disease further was, in fact, murder. And so he goes on, and there's more in here. But I just say that to say, as followers of Christ, we, we aren't in unprecedented times. In fact, if anything, we, we are back into great company throughout history of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have taken seriously the call of Christ and have said, yes, even if it costs me my life, I'm, I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow what Jesus has called me to. I'm going to love my neighbor. Now, our church in these recent days, the, the way that we have loved our neighbor is we have done what has been asked of us and we have stayed home. We have helped fight the, the spread of the disease. We've helped fight uh, the spread of the infection by not taking chances that could pass it to one another or pass it to others. And that's the way that we have loved our neighbor through this time so far. But now as we're being told that it's okay for us to come back together, now as we are facing more and more mental health issues uh, relating to uh, the isolation, and we see the need for coming back together as a body so that we can minister to people in that way, uh, what so many of us need right now is just human interaction. That's, that's what we need. That's how we can love our neighbor. We're sorting through how do we approach this? How do we approach this wisely? How do we approach uh, this with, with a way that does care for people, that does love people, that doesn't get more people sick? At the same time that we, we do what we've always tried to do in, in meeting people's needs and helping them and ministering to them. And so as we're, we're looking at, at plans for resuming in-person ministry, I, I do appreciate all of you guys that have filled out uh, the survey uh, so far. Let me know where you are. And, and yeah, um, you guys on your surveys are as vast in responses as I am in my own mind, um, just all over the place on how, how do we approach this thing. You know, there's one side where we say, oh, well, we just have to trust God and we don't have to worry about anything like, you know, trust him and he's going to take care of us. Um, there's another side that says we have to be very wise about this. And uh, some on that side would go all the way to say, hey, we shouldn't do anything or uh, personally, we shouldn't. I'm not going to come back out until there is a vaccine 
um, or our treatment. And we, we have like both extremes in our church. I'll tell you, I have both extremes in my own mind. Uh, this week I, I sat down and I was like, okay, I just need to try to write out some of my thoughts on this and where we can go. Um, I think I'm at six pages uh, right now on uh, thoughts and options uh, relating to us resuming ministry as uh, a church in person. Questions like, um, how do we handle a 50-person max in our services? Do we have multiple services? Do you have to uh, have a reservation um, to get into a service? Uh, do we have uh, services out in the parking lot in our cars? Um, if so, do the drive-in movie theater rules apply to us in that situation as well? Um, if we're doing a drive-in service, if so, it's only 50 cars and we have to have washrooms with running water um, available for people. Um, how do we do it out of our parking lot and have access to washrooms? Um, how do we use our washrooms and keep them safe um, in e either situation, either scenario? Um, all of these things are running through my mind. How do we do this? Um, how do we keep our people safe? Because while I long to be together and have the corporate worship together again, the last thing I want is to be from that having ministry uh, to a bunch of people in the hospital or even worse, I don't want to be busy doing a bunch of funerals. And I, I just tell you this as, as a pastor that, hey, this, these are, are heavy decisions and heavy things that we're sorting through and not something that we're, we're taking lightly because there, there's so much to balance here and so much to sort through. Other questions we're asking, do we all wear masks? I know some of you are like, absolutely. Why would we not? Others of you are like, I don't want to wear no stinking mask. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to preach with a mask on. I already got enough with this thing hanging on my face. Like what, what would be, how's that work with a mask on and stuff like that? At the same time, if I can love you, if I can love my neighbor by wearing a mask, will I do that? Well, sure. Do we sing? Singing is one of the things that as, um, as you do the research and look into it is, is thought to really spread it because when you sing, you're just, you're belting it out. You're projecting stuff out of your mouth. So do we sing? Do we wear masks while we sing? Do we only wear masks while we sing? Do we wear masks all the time? All these questions bouncing through my head. Like I said, I've got six pages of this stuff, so I don't have time to cover it all right now. But after my brain has just been bouncing around all this stuff and seeking the Lord and praying, God, God, just show us, lead us where you want us to go. I've been given one main question that needs to drive answering all of the other questions. The other questions are important, but I've got, been given one main question as I was looking at this passage this week. This passage, as we just saw, laid out the gospel. It laid out the truth of Jesus and the hope that we have as Christians. And our job as Christians, we know, is to take that message to the world, to take that to those who need it, to help make disciples. And so the question I'm left with that needs to drive and the answer to this question should guide all of our other questions is how do we as a church stay on mission and help people 
and be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus Christ. How do we stay on mission? Our mission hasn't changed. Our God hasn't changed. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. And he still has a plan for us. So the key for us as a church is that we're doing that following part. We need to follow Jesus right now. Not follow our own desires, not follow our own wishes, but follow Jesus. And as we follow him, he's going to lead us where he wants us to go as far as what our ministry looks like. Because helping people be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus Christ is the purpose of our church. That's what we're here for. In the past, a big part of that has been a a growing in-person gathering with more and more people the longer we've gone on. But the mission has not changed. I'm so glad Ken was able to join us today. But it reminds me of when I first got here and we had times where our gathering was, you know, 12, sometimes seven of us, like, you know, like there, there were times where there weren't many of us gathered. We have more people still here now putting on the live stream than we had at that point. But our mission was the same at that point. Our mission was the same when we were worried about maxing out this building at a hundred people. And our mission is the same now as we're looking at under these restrictions that we're given and how we can best protect uh, people and keep people healthy. Our mission is the same. How are we going to help people be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus? And as we answer that question, it's going to be clear where we go from here. So while you might really wish you could come sit in the seat right now, hold on a little bit. It's going to happen. We will get back. We will be back together. Gathering is a big part of who we are. Corporate worship is very important. But I encourage you to stay on mission right now without that. Stay on mission from that side of the camera. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that Our mission has not changed. I thank you that the gospel has not changed. I thank you that your goodness has not changed. I thank you that your faithfulness has not changed. I thank you that Jesus has not changed. I thank you that the realities of life and death have not changed. I thank you that for the fact that for those of us who know you, those who have been called by you, we have the joy to look forward to in our eternal inheritance. We don't have to be tainted Uh, by fear in this life. At the same time, we want to strive towards wisdom and being wise. We want to love our neighbors in the most effective way possible. And so, Lord, show us how to do that. Show us each in our personal lives the way to engage in that way, the way to do that. But show us corporately as a church how to go about that as well. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are and for all that you've done for us. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.